You're listening to another New Hope Chapel podcast. Hi, this is Justin Hibbert, pastor of New Hope Chapel. Thanks so much for listening. Today you'll be hearing from Bill Smith, a member of our teaching team, as he continues our series called The Master. So we're going to continue on this this series of Jesus as Master, and today I'm going to talk about Jesus as Master over distance, and we're going to take a look at this passage from John 4. I'll read it for you once more. He visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum, a distance of about 20 miles or two days' journey on foot. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, Sir, come. Come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, Yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. And this was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. Before we go any further, just a disclaimer, I was encouraged to put up here, the opinions expressed during the sermon are mine alone and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of policies of the teachers of New Hope Chapel. New Hope Chapel is not responsible for the accuracy of any of the information supplied by me. In addition, New Hope Chapel is not responsible for any offense caused inadvertently through interpretation of grammar, punctuation, language, or hermeneutic process. <laughs> Warren suggested I put that up there. <laughs> so, <clears throat> as we should always do when we look at any passage in Scripture, we want to take a look at the context. And so the questions I initially had were, why does he go back to Galilee, and why was he in Judea in the first place? So if we look just at John, I'm just staying in the book of John. We see, the first we see uh, Jesus in terms of location is down here in Bethany, where he is baptized by John. So it's, we know it's not this Bethany because it was at the Jordan River, so we know it's that Bethany. And then it says that he uh, goes up, he decides to go to Galilee. That's all it says, he decides to go there. I'm, I'm, I'm suspecting perhaps the reason he goes there is because, well, that's where he's from originally. So he sort of goes back home. I sort of had that pointing to Nazareth, but the, the scholars would say probably not to Nazareth because he himself said a prophet is not honored in his own country. So he goes back to the Galilee area. And maybe the reason he really goes is because there's this wedding coming up in Cana. So he goes to the wedding and he changes water into wine. And then it says that he went down to Capernaum. That's my granddaughter right there. She does not like this sermon already. (laughs) I think I'll head back to Galilee. (laughs) So he goes down to Capernaum, which is a seaside, kind of an Annapolis kind of place there, with his mother and brothers and disciples for a couple days. Just goes down there. And then it says he uh, went back down to Jerusalem for the Passover. So we figure Cana to to Capernaum is about two days. So we're looking at about two and a half, three, maybe four days down for the Passover. And while he's there, he does a lot of amazing things and gets, gets some notoriety. 
And then from the Passover, it says he goes with his disciples into the Judean countryside. So I just put a question mark there. But he gets them away from Jerusalem so he can teach them. And then from there, he starts back to Galilee again, going back home because the Passover is over. And so he goes back. And he has to go through this, this sort of area or land of Samaria. So we see Judea down here, Galilee up there in between is Samaria, and he stops at Sychar, and this is where he meets the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, and and impresses her, and she goes back and tells everybody about Jesus. And then he heads on back up to Galilee. And it says, when he comes to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they themselves also went to the feast. See, when he went from Bethany to Galilee before, there's no mentioned that he's, he's a superstar, but now he comes back to Galilee and, and he's a superstar, rock star kind of guy, and everybody's celebrating. One of our own did well down in Judea. And then he goes back to Cana again in Galilee where he had been before, and this is where this story occurs. So I'm going to talk for a few seconds about these two areas, the Judeans down south, the more educated, more theologically astute because they're closer to the temple, there's more teachers there. Their language, accent, syntax, pronunciation, more sophisticated, you know, the Neapolitans. The Galileans are racially mixed, lax in their observance of proper ritual, graphically removed from the temple. Anyway, we're talking about the people from Arnold. So the, the, Samar- the land of Samaria separates the people of Judea from the people of Galilee. This man, this royal official, hears about Jesus. There's this big clamor, and his son is lying sick. And so he comes from Capernaum up to Cana, and he's begging Jesus to come and heal his son who was close to death. Now we go to the next slide here. And this idea of begging is a bit more than just this interaction that we might see in Hollywood. The idea here is that he's, he's following Jesus around. He's imploring him. He's not leaving him alone. And so finally Jesus deals with him. Next slide. And he, and he really rebukes him in a, in a sense. It's kind of a, kind of a hard thing for him to say. He says, unless you people. Now that phrase there, you people, has become sort of a, of a trigger phrase today, isn't it? You people, who's he talking about? Well, these people here who need to see signs and wonders. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will never believe. And actually, when we read this story, that turns out to be true. It's, when, it's, it's after he sees the sign and wonder of his son being healed that he does believe. And it kind of reminds me of Thomas, the doubter. Thomas was the same way. So if we look in this passage here, after the resurrection, everybody's saying they're seeing Jesus, but Thomas didn't see him, and so he doubts. He doesn't believe it. And so Jesus comes in the upper room where the doors are shut. See, not only is Jesus the master over distance, he's the master over any kind of physical obstacle in his way, and he appears in their midst and says, peace be with you. And then he says to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands, and reach here your hand and put it to my side, and do not be unbelieving, but be believing. And Thomas answered and said, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says, thanks. That's not what he says. He says, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who do not see and yet believed. So, as a shout out to Carl, I found this painting. And this is a painting by a guy named Caravaggio, Caravaggio an Italian painter. And he changed the, the world of painting by painting what they call natural light painting, sort of the, the first Thomas Kincaid of painting here. 
many of the paintings before him, you'll see that the light is kind of coming from everywhere. But Caravaggio says, no, the light's going to hit here, and in some places there'll be light, some places will dark and be dark, and the, in between it'll be a gradual shading from light to darkness. You know, some people live in the darkness, and some people live in the light. Some of us sort of live in the shade in between trying to get into the light and sometimes slipping into the darkness. When Caravaggio developed this technique and his first two paintings were presented, he became an instant celebrity like Jesus did when he came back to Galilee. He had plenty of commissions, even from the church and especially from the church. And uh, he handled his celebrity a little bit differently than Jesus did. And his true nature comes out. This is one of the things we see about lottery winners, right? They get all this money and we see who they really are. And so he starts to, as they say, swagger around with a sword by his side, always looking for somebody to fight. He really wanted to fight. He was an angry guy. Spent most of his life after that point in and out of jail. He gets himself to the point where a price is put on his head by the Pope himself. And about the age of 38, Caravaggio then begins a journey to uh, Rome for a pardon from the Pope and dies mysteriously, most likely in another fight. So Caravaggio is the one who gives us this new way of doing things, but he doesn't handle his celebrity very well. We know the next slide. Now, this story about the the, uh, the royal official reminds us, doesn't it, of the centurion, who also has a similar experience, but a quite different experience. This is told both in Luke and in Matthew. I'm going to use the Luke version here. And a centurion slave who was highly regarded by him was sick and about to die. And when he heard about Jesus, remember everybody's now talking about Jesus in Galilee. When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. When they came to Jesus, they earnestly implored him, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to him, for he loves our nation, and it was he who built our synagogue. And so Jesus starts on his way with him, just hearing that. Now, this was supposed to build, so I can explain to you. There's a difference. See, when the, when the royal official asks Jesus to come, he rebukes him, and he doesn't go. But here he goes immediately. So there might be some reasons why this happens, and we'll eventually find out. I'm sure we're getting part of the story. I'm sure that they might have explained to Jesus why he himself didn't come. Because if we look at that at first blush, it's like, oh, so you're too good to come to Jesus. You think you're better than him or something. But we find out that's not really the reason why he doesn't come to Jesus. The real reason is he doesn't even consider himself worthy to be a beggar in front of Jesus. So he approaches Jesus honoring him by not even coming. I'm not worthy to be in your presence. He approaches God much differently than does the royal official. In our Men in Christ group, which meets on Tuesday evenings at 7 o'clock, on the telephone so you don't have to go anywhere, guys, we talked last week about approaching God, coming to God, coming before him in praise That's why I feel comfortable coming up here at this point because we just spent about a half hour praising God and he inhabits the praise of his people. And this is what the centurion did. And he's already honored God by building him a synagogue. And he doesn't tell Jesus really what to do. So if we see the next slide, all the centurion says is, you just say the word. So the centurion says, Lord... You are far above me. Now, this is the Matthew version. We see the centurion with Jesus. 
I'm not worthy to approach you. You're so powerful. You don't need to come here. Distance is not a problem for you. The royal official says, sir, doesn't call him Lord. Sir, if it helps, I'll lower myself just to get you to do what I want. Here's what I want you to do. Come with me and hurry. We have a distance to cover. You ever notice yourself sometimes in prayer, for lack of knowing what else to say, you start to explain things to God, what he needs to do? You, know, you Like me, yeah. Lord, I don't know if you know about this problem, but uh, let me draw your attention. I know you're old and hard of hearing. <laughs> There's so many other things you've got to do run the universe. We start explaining the problem to him as though he's not aware of it, and then we start telling him how to solve it. We all do it. <laughs> he doesn't really do that. He just says, say the word. Next slide. Just say the word, Lord, and it'll happen. I think I'm going to start adding that to my prayer life. Lord, just say the word. I don't even know what to tell you to do. I just want you to say the word. He is the word. I'm going to see if I can go back to this now. And here's Jesus' reaction. It's quite different than his reaction to the royal official, isn't it? He rebukes the royal official with this centurion. He marvels, and he says to those who are following, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. Where was he just at? He was just down in Judea. Look at that closely. There's a little slam on the Annapolitans. You think they're better than us, right? I'm, not, I'm sorry if there's any people in here from, from Annapolis, but you get the point. Is he saying, I was just down there with all the high muckety-mucks, all the sophisticated theologians, all the men with all the robes and all that stuff, and here I meet a centurion, and here's where I find faith, here, up in Galilee, with the simple people. And so, as we see Jesus says, go ahead, your, your slave is healed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And why? Because you believed. You have faith. So <clears throat> let's talk about distance really quickly. It's the amount of space between two things. Look that up right there in the dictionary. And we measure distance in feet and yards and miles. And at some point, it gets to be such a great distance, we shift to using time to understand distance, don't we? And even in the scriptures, Capernaum is about... Oh, two days' journey on foot. It gets to be so vast. We look at distance <clears throat> in terms of light years. We see that it's the distance light covers after traveling for a year. It travels at 186,000 miles per second, or 671 million miles an hour. After a year, it's almost a 6 trillion miles. So the universal speed limit is 671 million miles an hour. So at some point in the future, you're in your spaceship and you get pulled over. You're going to be asked, you know why I pulled you over? I clocked you at 672 million miles an hour. (laughs) You can't go faster than that. And so these are some vast distances just in one year how far light travels. So if we go from here to Justin's house, it's about 20 minutes. (laughs) If we go from here to Cupertino, California, where we would have Apple headquarters, it's almost two days, okay? And then if we go from here to the moon, almost 239,000 miles, and then from the sun to the earth, depending on what time of year, around 92 million miles away. And of course, the sun sits in a galaxy, but we, I mean, at the center of our solar system. The diameter of the solar system is about four light years, so the Earth's gravity 
seems to extend out almost two light years away. And the, the solar system sits in the galaxy, and we're right there. We want to find your spot. It's approximately 100,000 light years in that diameter of the Milky Way. Now, the disk is only 1,000 light years thick because it's been on the Atkins diet for a while, so it's not, but anyway, it's pretty big. And then, of course, the galaxy sits in the universe. The closest galaxy to us is 80,000 light years away, the Sagittarius Dwarf Galaxy. You didn't know you were going to get an astronomy lesson today, right? God's running all of this. You see, the Hubble Space Scope in 1999 detects about 125 billion galaxies in the universe. When I was in college, a professor walked us through all of that and at one point said, if the universe is that big, how can there possibly be a God? And I'm there as this goofy college student going, seriously, dude, how could there possibly be a God? He did it much more eloquently than I did. Our brains were about to explode. Things are so big. <clears throat> how could there possibly be a God? Well, here's how. If you want to be the master over the distance of the universe, all you need to do is have mastery over time. And if you can figure out how to get outside of time, then there is no distance between any two points. So we've got to see if there's any evidence in Scripture that God has mastered time. And so if we go back to the beginning of John, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, literally translated, When the beginning started, the Word already existed. When the beginning started, I, I think we're going to find out time is a created thing that we sit inside of. In fact, it may have started in the Garden of Eden, right? That's when it started. We're sort of prisoners of it. We always have, we never have enough of it or we have too much of it. And it keeps slipping into the future and it keeps slipping away and being wasted. Jesus says, I'm the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, who is and was and who is to come, the Almighty. He sits outside of time. He's the master over distance and time. In John 6, here's another evidence that Jesus can manipulate time. He can sit outside of it. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. Right back to Capernaum again, hot spot. By now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid, and then they were willing to take him into the boat. And immediately, the boat reaches shore. And they had rowed for three or four miles, and immediately, they're on the other side of the shore as soon as they bring him into the boat. Mark tells us that the first sermon Jesus preached, that when he first began to preach, this was his basic message, repent, for the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, or other versions say the kingdom of God is, is near to us. And, and we always thought about it in terms of time, but he's also talking about the distance between us and the kingdom of God. I remember years ago sitting in a workshop and, and the teacher said, where's heaven? I said, well, it's above earth. He says, so how far above earth do you need to get to be into heaven? And he was thinking about an inch. Most of my body is in heaven. I'm in the heavens. In Luke 10, it says, The Lord appointed 70 others and sent them in pairs ahead of him. Just like John the Baptist was sent ahead of him, he sends people ahead of him as well. He's sending us ahead of him as well. 
And he was saying lots of things to them, and I pick it up right here. Whatever city you enter, and they receive you, eat what is set before you, and heal those in it who are sick, and say this to them. The kingdom of God is, is near. It's right here. I mean, just right outside my body, and there's the kingdom of God. I can't see it, but we definitely work in it. We go back to Exodus. Moses says to God, Behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God says to Moses, I am who I am. Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. This is his name. His name is I am. Have any of you like me ever had the experience of feeling like God is distant from you? Where is he at? You may have talked about that. Have you ever heard any, any of the, the preachers and teachers say, it's not that God's distant from you. You're distant from God. And I've heard this before. You may have heard it before. And, and then generally the next statement is something about, um, it's because you've been so sinful that you removed yourself from God. I'm not going to say that here. I'm not going to say it's wrong. I'm not going to say it's right. I'm going to give you another thought of why God feels distance to you. His name is I am, not was, not will be. He's here now. But many times, some of us, we get to thinking about things in the past, things that we regret, and we stare there, and we walk through life backwards looking at our past, and if only they hadn't said this to me or done this to me. If only I had done this or that, things would be better, and we walk through life backwards, and we're not here, and God will feel distant to you. Others of us, we're in the future worrying about stuff. Some of us are worriers, aren't we? Analyzing, analyzing, analyzing. If I do this, what about this? Maybe if I do this, do that, and we sit there and worry about things in the future, and we never worry about anything positive. It's always negative. (laughs) No one ever worries. I hope I don't have too much money this month. My gosh, what am I... Hope I'm not too healthy. <laughs> it's always negative. It's what we don't want. We're not here. We're there. Or we're there. I'm not since it's not playing a role. Thinking about what happened in the past. A few weeks, Scott correctly said, if we don't have a conversation about sin, we'll never be able to appreciate our need for a Savior. He's exactly right. Now I want to add to my brother's wisdom and say, but if we keep on dwelling on our sin, we'll never be able to appreciate the work of the Savior. Be here. Now, call his name. Try starting your prayer this way. I am. I am. And then talk about yourself and who you are. I am here too, Father, right now with you. I'm not back there anymore. I'm not up there. I'm right here with you now, and I'm ready to listen with you and to hear your voice and to see your face and feel your presence. Just a thought about how to not feel so distant from God because he never left. Get out of the future, get out of the past, and be here. Or they say stop and smell the... Something, right? Stop and smell the sweetness of the Lord. This is the cure for anxiety right here in Matthew 6. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on it. 
Is life not more than food, the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, how they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, about a, uh, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon, in all of his glory, clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? Or what will my boss say about my presentation? Or will I make this sale or will I generate enough revenue? Don't worry about those things. The Gentiles eagerly, I added some stuff right there to the scripture in case you didn't notice that. <laughs> I just want to get to what we worry about, right? The Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Prescription for anxiety. He ends by saying, so do not worry about tomorrow. This, this starts to border, in my mind, as a command, not a suggestion. Don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Years ago, I had a, a sweet woman, Christian woman, working for me, but she was a professional worrier. And I found this little, this little card, and I gave it to her, and she posted it right there on her, on her wall. It says, worry slanders every promise in the word of God. See, we're worrying, what are we saying about God? I don't think you can heal over a distance. I don't think you can deal with time. I've got to worry these things for you. The reason God, Jesus, has command over distance in time is, is right here in Romans 8. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor distance nor any other created thing like time will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what enables him to have command and mastery over time and distance. See, love knows no boundaries. Love has no limits. Nothing can stop it. This is the essence of 1 Corinthians 13. As I talk about this passage and this capability of Jesus, I'm reminded that John also says, or Jesus says in, in John, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these will he do because I go to the Father. You think about that verse. We're supposed, I'm not supposed to. I'm not, I don't like the shoulds and nots, but apparently there's something that's happened to us that enables us to do what he did. That's what the, being a disciple meant. You didn't become a disciple unless the rabbi thought you had the capability to do what the rabbi did. That was the test. Fortunately, it says in Romans 5, 5, the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. It's just something that I pray about a lot. I encourage you to pray about as well. I simply pray, Father, please fill my heart so full there's room for nothing else because there's a lot of other stuff in there. And I, I hope he gets out of there and heals it and still healing me. And I just keep praying for the love to just, you know, pack it in so that I can 
be doing the things you did. Otherwise, I'm doing it on my own, and I always fail on my own. See, Jesus is the master over time, distance, and space. He's the master over everything. And there's a reason why. Because the master is love. Thank you for listening to New Hope Chapel's podcast. Located in Arnold, Maryland, New Hope Chapel is a small expression of the much larger body of Christ that spans across the world. We're a group of believers helping each other on our lifelong journeys to become like Jesus. While we have a variety of distinctives that make us a unique church, our main desire is to be God's church, to love Him, follow Him, to learn from Him, to let Him lead us and change our lives. We are His disciples, and He is our rabbi. Join us in the story that God is writing called New Hope Chapel. To learn more about our church, visit us at newhopechapel.org or check us out on Facebook slash newhopechapelmd. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and iTunes. Music kindly provided by the least of these. Thanks again for listening and God bless.